Well, good morning, all souls. We are in the third sermon in our series called Hope Amid the Ruins, where we are looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we started two weeks ago with Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, with Nehemiah actually weeping over the ruins and weeping over the report of Jerusalem being ransacked and the people there lying in desperate, hopeless as they were watching all of the things going on around them, the world falling apart. And so this is far from a kind of triumphalist message about how we need to get out there and kind of fix everything that's broken in our world, how we need to muscle up and change it in our own strength. It's about recognizing what has been lost so that the vision can be refined and that we can emerge from this time by the power of the Spirit ready to re-engage. Last week, Josh reminded us that one of the things that takes place before the work of rebuilding begins is that the people of God need to make an altar in the world, that their prayers and their worship are not so much, you know, uh, opposed to or even a prelude to the work that needs to be done, but they are in themselves the foundations of that work. And today we're going to jump ahead to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. I encourage you to go ahead and read the first part of the chapter when you've got some time. But I just want to point out that chapter 2 starts with a time mark. It lets us know that four months has passed between the time that Nehemiah first begins to pray and the time that he asks the king to go ahead and get the permission to rebuild. And it's important for us to remember that Nehemiah was not a prophet or a priest. He was just, by every stretch, you know, a, a regular guy with a government job. But what he had, what God had given him, he used that to be part of God's purposes. And what he had was proximity to the king and the kind of influence that comes from living a life of integrity. And he could have easily chosen kind of the cushy life in the empire, but instead he chose to roll up his sleeves to get his hands dirty, to get his heart broken. And through his prayers, he discovered this calling to be part of restoring God's hope to people. And I I think it's a story that resonates with us as followers of Jesus who also find ourselves in a bit of a rebuilding process, particularly at a time when the voices that shape our view of reality are more polarized than they have ever been, at least in my lifetime, to the point to where the very nature of what is good and beautiful and true is up for debate. And also at a time when our rhythms and practices as a church community have been disrupted so that all of those things that we are used to relying upon to carry us into God's presence have taken a hit. And so we pick up this morning after Nehemiah packs up everything and travels to Jerusalem, which, according to Google Maps, would uh, take a little bit of time. Nehemiah has heard about the ruins. But it's not until he is able to kind of take in the extent of the damage himself. Not until it moves from the theoretical to the lived experience that the vision of what God wants him to do begins to take shape. So let us hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. I went up to Jerusalem 
And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except for the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on forward toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up in the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about what God had put on my heart, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Almighty God, we ask that you would come in spirit and truth, that by your spirit, we would hear your word to us this morning, and that hearing, we would obey, be drawn into your presence as your disciples. We pray this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In 2006, uh, Jill and I had the opportunity to visit Lucca, Italy. It's one of those picturesque medieval European cities that has this beautiful piazza in the town center, totally surrounded by walls. And, and it's an interesting thing to think about the, uh, the idea of a walled city when you fast forward to the present, to what uh, the Reverend Dr. King called the age of guided missiles and misguided men, where our capacity for destruction has outpaced our ability to defend. It's, it's really hard for us to kind of get our, our heads around how important walls were to Iron Age and Bronze Age cultures. And the thing about them, and at least for God's people and the, the story of Jerusalem, is that the walls always had at least two functions— and the first one is obvious. It, it refers to the kind of the negative space, the space that exists outside of the walls. And the purpose of the wall is to keep that space out from the inside. There's a, a physical barrier. And without it, the people don't have a, a place of sanctuary. They don't have protection from 
threats or from things that come from the outside. But, and this is the more important piece of the story, there is also a positive space created inside the walls. That is the space where virtue is cultivated, where, where culture is shaped, where community life is formed. The walls of Jerusalem allowed the people to have an interior life where they could be shaped and formed by the law, where God's vision of shalom could be brought into the world. And those walls created this kind of positive space that from there the people would leave and they would engage in their mission to be the light of the world. Think of them as kind of analogous maybe to the walls of your home. That's where some of your deepest reflection and some of your deepest formation takes place and the ordinary things that you do throughout life. It's the space where family life is cultivated. It's the place where, where friendships are formed. It's the place of quiet, of, of rest, a place where you go to connect with God. It's the tumbling ground of everyday things like learning how to love neighbors, learning how to love family members that you definitely did not choose. <laughs> It's also the place of rest that you leave behind as you seek to participate in what God is doing in the world. Now, Nehemiah, he receives this call to, to start rebuilding the walls. But it's way more about than just going and starting to lay brick. First, he spends months of prayer and preparation in allowing God to shape him to be the kind of person that he can be to, to do this work that God is calling him to do. And then he spends all that time on the road. There is a lot of time to pray when you're out on the road. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, you notice that he does not tell anyone why he is there or what it is exactly that God has brought him there to do. No, he starts by getting his boots on the ground. He starts by kind of actually sizing up the problem. And Nehemiah hasn't told anyone what he's going to do because he has to see for himself actually what it is that he is dealing with. And I feel like maybe you know what that's like on a personal level. Um, you know, we're still kind of early on in a new year. A lot of us have taken up uh, new resolutions. We've kind of sized up our life. We're in the process of kind of surveying the landscape of our own lives and seeing what needs to be renovated. You thought about this for a while. You, you've even prayed about it. You've talked about it with others. Maybe you've even tried to get people to kind of join in on the project. But then you come to this crossroads where you're actually starting to really count the cost. And maybe for you that project is to stop allowing an addiction or a habitual sin or the pain of emotional trauma to stop ruling your life. And it's time to stop going through the motions to take a sober assessment of what it would look like to partner with the Spirit to actually begin to renovate and rebuild the walls of your health, your, your relationships, your, your faith. Or Maybe you are part of the 25% of people who are weighing whether to switch careers altogether because of the pandemic. 
And that is incredibly demanding to think about it. Aside from the economics of it, which you can cost, you're not sure that you're ever going to be at peace with yourself if you don't take the risk. And that is a cost that you can never fully count. Or maybe for you, you've spent so much time building up the kind of life that you were always told was going to bring you peace and security and everything that you wanted. And then suddenly being home with your family all the time has made you realize how much of life you are actually missing out on. And as the year has gone on, you've, you've started to see the world through the eyes of the pain of other people. And it's made you wonder if the goals that you have been chasing have really led to a life that you're sure that you even really want. Sometimes we need the time to take the, the step back and view things from 30,000 feet. We need to see more than just the view from the headlines. We also need to sometimes step in and survey the rubble ourselves. After all, Nehemiah, he heard about Jerusalem all the way over from Persia, but he needed to go there himself to see the damage up close. He needed to get his boots on the ground to roll up his sleeves. And so he gets up in the middle of the night, he grabs a mount, and he spends the night riding around the crumbled walls of the city so that he can inspect the rubble. He wants to see what has actually happened to this once great city. And that is when he starts to see how challenging this project of renovation is actually going to be. I don't know about you, but uh, I have done my share of night writing this year. Uh, that is what you do at 2 o'clock in the morning when you are staring at the ceiling Wondering what you are going to do. Sometimes it feels like all you can do is throw a saddle on your worries and ride them around like a carousel. We think to ourselves, I want to be, be part of a more just world. But I can barely manage my job and my family responsibilities we think, how, how can I possibly make a difference in discipling others? I'm not even sure I'm doing that with my own kids. Do I really want to let go of a pretty comfortable life to do the things that God is asking me to do? Night riding, that's, that's when you start asking, what was I thinking So we realize that any changes that we might make for the future are actually going to cost us a lot of what we've already known. And it's worry that rears up when we see the enormity of the problem, but the solution is not really that apparent. But if Nehemiah tells us anything, uh, it's that the what of God's desire is always going to come before the how. That is, you are going to know what it is that God wants you to do long before you know exactly how God is going to put it in your heart to do it. 
And again, the, the greatest costs are not financial. The greatest costs are encountering all the things that you are going to lose along the way. I mean, think of it like this. The citizens of Jerusalem, they had grown accustomed to things being in ruins for about 100 years. And it's actually a pretty common story throughout the Bible that those who are endeavoring to partner with God in the process of building the kingdom usually have to struggle the most against the people who have learned to just simply cope with the way things are. I mean, that is true whether you are talking about Israel contending with the prophets, or whether you're talking about the Pharisees contending with Jesus and John the Baptist, or the Jerusalem church who are questioning whether or not to bring Gentiles contending with Paul and Barnabas who are saying, yes, you absolutely must do this. Sooner or later, everyone who wants to live into a vision of the future has to do some night writing. You have to spend some time wondering how it is that you can help others see what you see. You have to wonder how you can cast something so compelling that it jars people out of the complacency of the presence. And maybe the hardest complacency to shake is the complacency you feel yourself. Well, after his ride, Nehemiah tries to inspire the people to join him, to become hopeful rebuilders of the city. And I want you to notice that he does this first by identifying with the people. He asks this kind of rhetorical question. He says, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and then we will no longer be a disgrace You see the trouble that we're in. It begs the question, do they? Do they see it? Max Dupree, who was the longtime chair of Herman Miller and then went on to serve on the board of Fuller Seminary, he wrote that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. But in between the two, the leader must become a servant That sums up the progress of an artful leader. And we see here that Nehemiah is doing that first and second thing. By saying we, he lets them know that he's willing to take on the problem as his own. He's not coming from the outside and saying, hey, why are you guys living like this? It's not enough to see the need around you. You have to be willing to step in and bear it. You have to be willing to serve. But secondly, he needs them to see what he sees because until people own the problems, there is no hope of them actually owning the solutions. And and here's the thing. Nehemiah was never called to start this rebuilding process by himself. No, he is called to come alongside the people who are desperate to lift up their heads and to get them to see a vision that is bigger than anything that they could imagine, to see a future that stands in sharp contrast with the present so that they can awaken to what God is doing and join in this process of rebuilding. But even all that ends up not being quite enough. Because agreeing on a problem does not mean that you are ready to do something about it, right? I mean, in AA, admitting that you have a problem is the first step. There are 11 other steps. I mean, as a pastor, I have known far too many couples who know that their marriage has lost trust and intimacy. 
And it is one thing to know that. It is another thing altogether to work toward getting it back. We often want a a band-aid solution to something that requires radical surgery. And if given the option between surgery and a band-aid, we will take the band-aid every time. And so Nehemiah continues. He says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Then the people committed themselves to the common good, to this process of rebuilding and said, let's start building. And that's the key because we are only going to find courage to move into the future when we see how God has carried us in the past. Leonard Sweet has this great uh, way of describing this as the dynamic of a child on a swing. It's only by pulling back that we find the energy and the momentum to swing forward. That's what we do in the church. We, we pull back into our memories of the faithfulness of God in the past, to the, in the history of our individual lives, in our church, in our, in our community, so that we can kick ahead with bold risks into the future. And it's one of the reasons why we come and we gather around the table every week. It's one of the reasons why we gather in community groups because we need to take the time to remember how God has been faithful to us in the past and we need to be around a community of people who are shaped by the same spirit to remind us when we forget. We need all these things to take the time to remind us that we are not the same persons that we were a year ago. God has already done some renovation in our lives. And you need that in order to move ahead. Because the challenges before us are are overwhelming. We've prayed about them. We've spoken about them. We've identified them. And we will. And we're going to need to pull back into worship and into community and remind each other how God has met us. I mean, the pandemic has kind of put us in this place of frayed relationships, frayed rhythms as a church. It's, it's really hard for us to imagine what a rebuilding process looks like. And, and I confess that that is a bit of the, the dissatisfaction that I'm in right now. But part of the reason that we are in this series is that as a people who seek to practice the way of Jesus in the world together, it's going to lead us to survey the landscape to see where the renewal of God needs to take place and where his kingdom needs to break in. To see where the walls have broken down in our lives together and in the life of our community. We've got to ask, what is it that really breaks our heart as a community? Because it breaks God's heart. Where are we called to extend compassion, to suffer with? Because those are the people for whom God wants us to join in the process of renewal. And so I am curious, all souls. What are you seeing as you are inspecting the rubble of this year and this season in our life together? Is it the social division that keeps us living in completely alternate realities? Is it the yawning gaps of injustice that keeps showing up along racial lines? Is it 
the failure of the church to disciple its people so that Jesus has a clearer voice than the voices on the right and on the left. What do you see when you look out on the rubble? From a distance, there's a lot in our culture that needs repair. There's a lot in our life together as God's people that needs repair. But if we are going to address the world outside of our church walls, it's going to happen because God has strengthened the life of his people within. For the last couple of months, our session here at All Souls has been in the process of kind of turning over the rocks and inspecting the rubble to see how God wants us to respond to the needs of our community in the future. We're trying to ask where the walls of our fellowship and of our life together in the broader community have broken down and how God wants to actually use this church to bring renewal. And like Nehemiah, we have been in prayer. And I invite you to, to join us in that, not just for our work of discernment, but so that we can begin to repair what we can, even in this strange season of church. And yeah, there is going to be a time when we as a church are ready to seize a vision and ask all those who call this church their home to participate in the renewal that God wants to do through us. But as we're doing that work as a session, there is also an opportunity to pay attention to what God has been showing you. It's hard to believe that our family moved here a year ago tomorrow. Um... Let's just say that my first year with you has not turned out exactly like I thought. I had this real clear sense early on in the pandemic that whatever it is that I thought was going to happen in my first year at All Souls was going to need to take a backseat to whatever it was that God was doing. That whatever it is that, that I envisioned was going to take a backseat to where God is pulling our hearts, pulling your hearts, and so where is God lifting up your face and causing you to look out on the horizon to see a better future? Where is God calling you to start the process of reordering your own life and your practices so that you can have the courage to be a part of what he's doing? Where have you already noticed God at work in your life? I want you to spend some time considering that. Book it on your calendar before the service is over. And it needs to be time when you're not rushed, time when you can sit with God and ask him, where is he going to repair the walls of your life? Maybe you can't fix the divisions of the world all by yourself. But you can re-engage with that family member whose politics or way of seeing the world is so different from yours. And over the course of the year, the walls of that relationship have started to crumble. Maybe you can't fix the inequities and the injustice of the world, but you can begin the process of listening and identifying with those who are lying in the ruins. And maybe that all feels too daunting. Maybe yours is simply the work of stepping into community because you have found this year that the walls of self-sufficiency are not strong enough to hold. But definitely underneath all of that, if the walls of your life with God have fallen asunder, 
It's time to start the ordinary work of connecting with the Spirit through prayer, through meeting God in the Scriptures. And and don't be surprised if the questions that come up when you start that process will make you want to run. Don't be surprised if even those questions come to you as a threat. I mean, because maybe you're, you're tired and you're already thinking, I, I do not have any more to give. But that's exactly the place where you get to pull back into the memory of what God has done in the past. And to know that when you pray, you are praying to the one who has promised to take his yoke to give you his yoke, to to partner with you, to say, hey, let's start rebuilding together. And as you inspect the rubble, you're going to discover something unshaken. In a year that has shaken the nations, there is one thing that refuses to be, and that is the love of our Father. In fact, it is here at the table that we are reminded every week of God's gracious activity to us in the past where we are invited to remember that he gave his very life so that through the spirit we might be part of the son's mission of making the world and making everything new Jesus casts a vision of where a time when everything will be restored and made new And he gives us this vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb where we are given a feast where all things are made to be as they are meant to be. And so friends, as we come to this table, let us pull back into remembrance. And as we do, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. It is right to give our thanks and praise. Friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread. He broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This cup is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And as you do, do so in remembrance of me. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again to make all things new. And so, friends, as we come... Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat, drink and remember and rejoice. Amen.